Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Brethren, let us hear God's precious word. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this evening. Well, up until a few weeks ago, uh, we had been studying through the doctrine of God's sovereign grace. And uh, I was sick for a couple of weeks. And then we followed uh, that with uh, a couple of Wednesdays where we looked at the issue of baptism as we had a baptism service. And uh, and then we looked at the qualifications of a deacon as we uh, have appointed our first deacon in a few years here. Uh, And I have wrestled with whether to go back and and take up a few of the objections uh, to the doctrine of grace or whether to press on with um, a new series of Wednesday night studies. So I'm continuing to pray about that and it was just in my heart this afternoon to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we have a passage set before us which wonderfully does so. Of course, that's, that's my aim every time that I preach or teach. But uh, this is an explicit passage that holds the glory of Christ before us. And so I pray that our hearts and minds would be fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren... Uh, The the epistle to the Hebrews is one of my most cherished writings in the New Testament. Uh, Several years ago, I taught through it, and uh, I understood at that particular point how William Googe, uh, back in the days of the Puritans, could preach for 14 years on it, which he did. Uh, it It was, and it is, one of the richest portions in all of Scripture because it brings so much Scripture together in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The clear intent of this epistle is to convince the Hebrews to go on with the Lord Jesus Christ and to stay faithful to both the gospel of grace and to the church of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit's method in this is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, by displaying His greater glory over all the things that the Hebrews held dear. The types and the shadows had passed away, and they had come to glorious fulfillment in the person of our beloved Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So, we want to consider just uh, very briefly... Uh, the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ and His greater glory in these first four verses. 
And we want to do it under these three heads, God willing. First, the prophecies concerning the Son. <clears throat> Secondly, the fulfillment by the Son. And then, the holy description of the Son. So the title of our message this evening is The Greater Glory of the Son. The Greater Glory of the Son. So let's look at verse 1, and let's consider the prophecies concerning the Son. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle to write in verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. One of the great great glories <clears throat> and the mercy of our God is that He reveals Himself. We have a God who speaks. And our God has come according to His sovereign purpose throughout history and made Himself known to men, to women, to children. He is not a silent God. He is not the God of the deists who wound up the universe after creating it and threw it out there kind of like a clock, just ticking away, working away, while he's out some other place in the universe working on a new project. We have a God who is intimately involved with his creatures, and he has made himself known. But his early way of making himself known was through his prophets. The Spirit of Christ, Peter tells us, spoke through the prophets. And what were they ultimately speaking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. <clears throat> After His resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ came to His dear disciples. He loved them. And He spoke to them. <clears throat> And he said in verse 44, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Brother, he goes on to say then, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The apostles were chosen and anointed by the Lord Jesus Christ to go out and preach His gospel. But from what scriptures did they speak? When Christ said, It is written... As I pointed out many times, he wasn't talking about the New Testament. He wasn't talking about Luke's writing. He wasn't talking about Matthew or Mark or John. He opened their minds to the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. And a Bible study took place that was like none that has ever been. I would love to have been there. Same thing happened to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opened their understanding to the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And then he said, It behoved the Christ to die and to rise again. 
Those are not only revealed in the New Testament. In types and shadows, they came forth from the prophets. They spoke of the mighty coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God spake at sundry times and in diverse manners in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He spoke in symbolic language. He spoke in parables. He spoke in poetry. You read the Psalms, you have the most precious and beautiful poetry that has ever been penned. He spoke in prose. We have historical prose and and other narrative prose throughout the Old Testament. He spoke in uh, uh, not only narratives, but in very plain language sometimes. Other times it was veiled, dark sayings. But all of it was about Christ in some way or another. I remember reading a criticism that someone uh, had put in print regarding Arthur Pink. This was someone who appreciated Pink's writings, but said that Pink was far too fanciful in his uh, digging to see Christ uh, in, in all of the Old Testament passages. But brethren, I find it hard to be upset with someone who's looking for Christ in all the scriptures. Whether or not he accurately um, succeeded in all of his attempts, brethren, he had the right idea. He was looking for Christ because this is the Christ book. And even though we do not see, and I use that term guardedly, and to, but even though we do not see Christ, so to speak, until the Gospels are written, He's all through the writings of the prophets. Jesus Christ Himself said this. Search the Scriptures, He said. They're, they're about Me. Moses wrote of Me. Over and over He said, It is written. It is written. So the prophets spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ. They did not always understand that which they spake. Even the angels, as Peter tells us, longed to look into all of this great salvation that God has displayed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was first broadcast in the Old Testament prophets. Thankfully, in God's mercy, He fulfilled these things by His Son, Jesus Christ, which is our second point. There are clear contrasts found in verses 1 through 3. And if we meditate carefully upon these passages, we will see, I think we will see them very clearly. First, though God spoke in times past, He now speaks in these last days. There it is. God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past. Then verse 2, hath in these last days spoken. Then He spoke to the fathers. Now He speaks to us. 
He has spoken to His new covenant people. And He still speaks to His new covenant people in His perfect and holy word through His Son. Once He spoke in the prophets, now He has spoken in Jesus Christ. The greatest prophet. While the prophets were many, there is but one Son. God's servants, the prophets, were imperfect, sinful men. While God's Son, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is holy, harmless, and undefiled. Now, this is illustrated by the prophet Isaiah, who said in the presence of God, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah 6, 5. When he, beloved of God, was in the presence of God, when he saw him in a great vision in the temple, what did he understand? He understood that he was a sinner. He understood that he was weak and vile and corrupt in the flesh. And even though a chosen vessel of God filled with the Spirit to speak of the coming Christ, he saw himself for what he was, a man of unclean lips. And brethren, I can assure you, when God's Spirit attends our services, when God in His mercy and in His grace makes His presence known, Beloved of God as we are, we will also know our sinfulness. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. We'll know that there is a great Savior. And we will know by His mercy and by the declarations of the Gospel that He loves His children. The Son of God, in contrast to Isaiah and to us, said, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. While Isaiah could moan because of his uncleanness, Christ could say, The enemy comes and he has nothing in me. At sundry times and in diverse manners speaks of the fragmentary way that God spoke in the past while He has spoken unto us by His Son. The, the Greek literally reads there, in Son. Speaks of completeness. We're no longer looking forward, looking through types and shadows to Christ. He has come in the fullness of His glory as the incarnate Son. We will see Him someday in the, His greater glory. But He did come as the incarnate Son, holy, harmless, undefiled. Now, this is a vital theme which runs throughout the epistle. Christ came and fulfilled. He completed what the Old Testament prophets could only point to in bits and pieces. This is a vital theme. 
the fragmentary progressive revelation of God through the prophets comes to its fulfillment and completion in Christ. In other words, brethren, we have set before us the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. While Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the minor prophets were wonderful and glorious in their day because they were chosen vessels of God and filled with His Spirit. They are but tiny lights shining compared to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh. Throughout this epistle, there is a great comparison and contrast between the Old Covenant and its revelation of the law on one hand, and the New Covenant and its revelation of God's Gospel on the other. Though the Old Covenant is not without grace, and though the New Covenant is not without law, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the superiority of Jesus Christ and the Gospel as the fulfillment of the types and shadows contained in the law. God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, to raise up a prophet like Moses. He said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Acts chapter 3, verses 20 through 23, reveal that the Lord Jesus Christ is that prophet. And that brings us to an important point. The Old Testament, in its typological sense, held before us prophets, priests, and kings. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled even those types. Not only is He the glorious Lamb of God, the morning and evening sacrifice, but He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's a prophet greater than all the prophets, a priest greater than all the priests, and a king greater than all the kings. Solomon in his greatest glory never compares to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is that prophet. It says in Acts chapter 3, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive unto the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Peter taking up the same theme that we're expounding tonight. From the very beginning, God has spoken by His prophets. God in His love, God in His mercy to sinners, has spoken of the coming One. And that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Quoting the Deuteronomy 18 passage. <clears throat> God, the Lord your God, raise up unto you of your brethren, 
like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul, every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Brethren, if I were to go no further in this message tonight, it's vital for me to say to you, have you heard God's prophet? Do you believe God's prophet? God spoke through the prophets in times past, but now He has spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you hear that? Have you ever heard that? Do you believe that? So that you have come unto Him for life everlasting. Brethren, there is a joy in announcing that, and there is a fear, a sober fear on my part. Because there is a solemn judgment that attends God's raising up this great prophet. Great joy to those who hear and believe His words. But God will cut off. God will condemn all those who reject His Word. The greater glory of Christ. It was a terrible thing not to listen to Moses. It was a terrible thing not to hear Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of the Old Testament prophets. But brethren, you cannot hear the sweet call of Christ and reject it without knowing that you will face God as your judge if you do. Every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. In verses 2 and 3, we see Christ's greater glory over the prophets. And as we have seen, the prophets were inspired by God Himself to speak and to write the Old Covenant Scriptures. They were His holy mouthpiece. They were His representatives. They were His instruments for revealing His eternal purpose in Christ. In Genesis to Malachi, all breathe the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Brethren, this is a glorious announcement of the coming one. And that is the Lord Jesus. We could go from one passage to the next. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the meek. Isaiah 61.1 Over and over we could we could dig through, sift through all those glorious prophets. And what we would find is them pointing, pointing with the finger of God's Holy Spirit to the coming Christ, announced by John the Baptist and finally declared by Christ Himself. Christ sitting at a, a lonely well and a, an immoral woman coming out to get water. He asks her to draw a little water for Him. They begin to talk. 
He reveals her sins to her. And she says, you know, well, we've heard that Messiah is coming. And she said, and he said unto her, the one to whom you speak is he. I am he. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. And he is the greater revelation of God. Well, then we want to take up finally the holy description of the Son. The prophets spoke of him. Christ in his mercy fulfilled all of those glorious prophecies. And then the Holy Spirit sets before us this greater glory of the greatest prophet. Our holy description of the Son involves seven things. In verses 2, 3, and 4, seven things are declared about the Lord Jesus that set Him far above the prophets of old. If we were to take the time we would see that in every one of these things, if we take all seven of them together, we see that Christ is not only greater in His glory as a prophet, but in the themes that will be unfolded through the rest of the epistle, He's greater as a priest, He's greater as a king. His mediatorship is set forth in the very things spoken before us here. And those themes are raised throughout this glorious epistle. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. He's the creator. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the image of God's person. He is the sustainer of all things. The redeemer and the Lord who rules from the Father's right hand. The prophets were God's faithful servants and inspired by the Spirit to reveal God's holy purpose. Nevertheless, by virtue of these seven things, the Lord Jesus Christ far surpasses them in revealing God and His eternal saving purpose. Jesus is not only the greatest prophet of God, He is the very subject of Scripture as we have already seen. And all of God's eternal purpose and the revelation of His glorious person are wrapped up and revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. First, He's the heir of all things. It tells us whom He hath appointed, God the Father hath appointed heir of all things. As the Son of God, Jesus receives all the Father's possessions. He is the heir. Christ's heirship speaks of His Lordship. Because He possesses all things and rules over all things, then this heir is Lord of all. He is the heir of the universe. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, after His glorious Resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power, all authority. Brethren, when we consider the immenseness of the universe and how small our little planet is 
in our little galaxy compared to the rest. And that on this little dot, the third stone from the sun, even smaller specks of dust, human beings standing there talking with one another, one of them stands before the rest and says, all things, all authority, it's given to me. We would think a man who'd say something like that need to be put away. But the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed His Father's will perfectly. He was born of a virgin, <clears throat> made under the law. He fulfilled all that His Father commanded Him all the way to His death upon the cross. On the third day, His Father raised Him again. And brethren, in fulfillment to what His Father commanded Him, His Father gave Him all authority. Not only the heir of the universe, He's the heir of the nations. Psalm 2, verse 6, Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And he's the heir of the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Jesus Christ is the glorious head of his church, the ruler of the nations, the ruler of all the universe with all authority. No prophet of the Old Testament could claim that. God's Holy Son can, does, and manifests His glory in it. Secondly, He's the Creator. It says, by whom also He made the world. Jesus Christ as creator of all things must of necessity be superior to all. It stands to reason, does it not? Jesus Christ made all things. If He has all authority and He has made all things, the only thing for us to do is to bow before Him and to praise Him in His greater glory. No earthly man, including a prophet could ever make such a claim. The prophets were created beings and temporal. Jesus Christ is their creator and therefore eternal. Though the prophets were great and mighty men, often manifesting great power and miraculous works, Christ, their creator, empowered them to do so. The prophets spoke and men heard from God Jesus Christ spoke and men heard God Himself. The prophets spoke words, spoke and words came forth. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke and a universe came forth. Let there be light. He created all things. 
The prophets had life. The Lord Jesus Christ is life. The prophets spoke of the splendor and the majesty of creation and its creator. And Jesus Christ is that creator. He laid the foundation of the earth. He stretched forth the heavens. He knows all the stars by name. When we can't count them, He conceived and spoke them into existence. The prophets were like candles in a dark place. The Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Isaiah and Matthew both say, The people which sat in darkness saw great light. Jesus said, While I am with you, I am the light of the world. When the prophets spoke, it was the Spirit of Christ in them testifying of Christ. It gave hope to those who heard them, assurance to us as Christ fulfilled what they said. God is faithful. God has a purpose. The seed which will crush the serpent's head has come and He has established the kingdom in its glorious but growing and incomplete form and the day will come. When Jesus Christ will bring it to its full consummation and we will see Him in all His glory. He's the Creator. And in Him we see the greater glory of the Son in comparison to the prophets of old. He's the brightness of His glory, it says. The brightness of His glory. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul speaks of the Israelites as those to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. When Paul writes of the glory, the glory, he is referring to the special presence of God among His people. Though the word glory has several meanings, Paul means the blaze of light and splendor, which is the essentialist expression of the holy majesty of God. It is the radiant outshining of God's perfections, the visible sign of God among His people. The Jews called it the Shekinah glory. When they had cleansed the tabernacle, anointed the prophets, anointed everything, and cleansed it. God's glory came down upon the tabernacle, and it was so great, the priests could not minister. The same thing happened with the temple. God's glory came down upon it with such might, that the people could not stand, the, the priests could not stand it. They couldn't minister. God led His people by a pillar of cloud in the day, but a pillar of fire at night. They knew that their God was the devouring fire on the top of Mount Sinai. He 
Ezekiel watched as that glory departed from the temple and then from the city of Jerusalem in a vision. But the Shekinah of God returned to Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. John speaks this at the beginning of his gospel. He said, And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. When, as it's so wonderfully said in the hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see! You want to see God? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew, go to Mark, go to Luke and John and gaze upon the glory of God come down among men. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there means tabernacle. He pitched his tent and we beheld that glory. I know now, John says, I know now, I understand when I saw him touch the, the leper and cleanse him and touch the eyes of the blind and make him see and touch the ears of the deaf and make him hear. I know now. We're seeing the glory of God among us full of grace and truth. Fourthly, it says he's the image of his person. The words express image are from one Greek word that means the exact representation or the exact likeness. Now, this is an interesting word which originally meant an instrument for engraving. Then it uh, later meant a mark stamped on that instrument. It would make a mark on something. Therefore, it came to be used of a mark stamped on a thing. It was used uh, of the impressions on coins. What we're being told here by the Holy Ghost is that when we gaze upon Christ in the Scriptures, that we see what God is really like. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? Gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exact likeness of God. It's not talking about a picture in the sense of a statue, certainly not a movie. The Word does tell us when we see Him, we shall see Him as He is. Until that day, we must look upon Him with the eye of faith as He is set forth in the Word of God. But brethren, here is where we see our God. God is Spirit. We would not recognize Spirit even if we saw it. We, we can't relate to Spirit. We don't know what it looks like, feels like, sounds like. But we can understand men. And God in His mercy and His inconceivable love to sinners came as a man. So that when we look upon Him, it isn't that we think, oh, there's another man sitting on a great throne in heaven as such. This is not what it means by the representation of God. It means, look at how He speaks. Look at how He acts. Look at how He deals with men. This is our God. 
So he's the sustainer. It says, upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding comes from a word that means to present us with the idea of sustaining something in constant movement. Now the world's always moving. The world is spinning right now on its, on its axis, so to speak, and moving around the sun. There's action and movement all around us. The, the air moves. Even the molecules, while we look at these things that appear to be solid to us, this is all moving. It's hard to understand. All the atoms, the molecules down there, they're all moving. And Jesus Christ, simply by His will, keeps it all sustained. The sun sends out its glorious light. The moon in the night. The stars in all their glory. The rainbow after the rain. Dry spells, wet spells, hurricanes, tornadoes, life, death. It's all sustained by Jesus Christ. What power is that, brethren? His own disciples, after waking Him in the boat, fearful for their lives, saw Him stand and say, Be quiet! to the wind and the waves. Be still! And they were still. And they said, What manner of man is this? Brethren, we know the answer. He's the God-man. The one who sustains all things by the word of His power. The Lord sustains the universe with all its changes and transformations while all the time everything maintains its coherence and carries on its development. He guides and propels this universe along as He brings it toward its final consummation in His eternal purpose. And it will go right on until the moment He brings it to a close. Not a moment sooner. The rivers stay in their beds. The oceans stay in, within their coastlines. The sun, the moon, the stars, they all abide in their places while the planets are all held in their orbits. Why don't we go sailing off and crashing into Mars? Because the Lord Jesus Christ keeps this all sustained according to His will. And while we all make our schedules and get our checklists together and find day after day that we can't make things run on the schedules that we want them to, Hard as we may try, nothing's out of His schedule. Nothing. He sustains all things by the word of His power. The seasons come and go, and everything maintains its proper character simply by the will of Christ. No prophet could make that claim. The greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ eclipses them. Sixthly, He's the Redeemer. And brethren, may God in His mercy grip our hearts to think upon this one passage 
we were to forget everything else said here this evening, may God help us that we never do. But right here, when He had by Himself purged our sins, the prophets of God could stand before men and reprove them and rebuke them in their sins. They could tell them to hear their God and flee to their God for the pardon of their sins. But Jesus Christ finished the sins of His people upon the cross of Calvary. The Holy Spirit emphasizes the work of Christ here in a way that I trust arrests our attention. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other Savior. There is no other hope for sinners but Jesus Christ. When He, not they, when He had by Himself purged our sins, by Himself points us to the fact that Jesus accomplishes the entire work of salvation without the aid of human or angelic devices. Brethren, while the angels may have encouraged and sustained Him in the garden, they couldn't weep in His place. They couldn't sweat great drops as it were of blood in His place. They could not bear the crown of thorns in His place. They could not endure the lashes upon His back or the, the nails in His hands and in His feet. Nor could the prophets of all. But the one who sustains the universe by the will of his own power, by himself, purged our sins. He alone kept the law. He alone died upon the cross. In his agony, he bore all the fury of his father's Righteous indignation. All of it. He alone was raised again. The prophets of old will stand with all the rest of us in the resurrection. But Jesus Christ, three days after His crucifixion, was raised again into life. The greater glory of Christ shines forth in His redemptive work. All the prophets could do is say, One is coming. Jesus Christ, in His person and by His work, proved, I am He. The greatest prophet. That is why, if you will not hear His word, you will be destroyed. Oh, come to the word to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not only raised again, but He alone ascended up into glory to be seated at the right hand of the Father. The word purged here denotes the removal of sin. And it, and it points to the 
filthy character of sin. Sin stains, sin defiles, sin corrupts, sin contaminates, sin pollutes. We must not only be forgiven, we must be cleansed. Brethren, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This is why David cries out, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And brethren, every sinner who comes to Christ, repenting and trusting Him alone, will know that cleansing, will know that purging neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Lastly, it tells us that after He purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, sitting as a posture of rest while being on one's right hand is a position of honor. This description of Christ means that He has finished His work and is in the place of the highest honor. In this we find God's sovereign work as King. He has, God has spoken to us in these last days in Son, our prophet. He's purged Himself. Excuse me, He has purged us by Himself. There He is as our priest. And there He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's our King. It's all right here. It's all right here. A King who loves us and gave Himself for us. A King who in His mercy saves sinners by His grace. When He takes His sword of the Spirit, it is not to kill. But He wounds and pours in the glorious balm of His Spirit. He makes us to know our lostness. He pierces us so that we might know we need a Savior. And He reveals Himself as the Lord and Savior who truly saves His people from their sins. So brethren, we think on these things prophets of old were great and we love them and revere them Christ in his greater glory as the son of God eclipses them his greatness goes beyond our understanding do you know him have you repented of your sins and trusted Him alone. Come to Christ. Come to the living Christ.
and know the greater glory of God's Son. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is our Christ. This is our Son, your Son, and our Lord and Savior. O Father, if there is but one who does not know Thee in this place tonight, You have set Him forth in Your Word. And in these seven things, we see a glorious completion. The prophet, the priest, and the king in all His great glory. Draw souls to Yourself, O Father. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying His word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.